to Writers on Craft, a show about creativity and the process of writing. I'm your host, Suzanne Legrand, and my guest today is Anthony Doerr, author of The Shell Collector, About Grace, Four Seasons in Rome, and most recently, Memory Wall. Welcome. Thanks, Suzanne. You describe writing as a brutal process of trial and error, or you also said that a lot of times you don't know what you're doing. And so I'm wondering what sustains you through the process of not knowing what you're doing. Oh, man. Well, it's just the magic of it. Um, You know, stringing together sentences that can generate whole worlds for people. You know, uh, anytime I get discouraged about my own writing, I just go back to reading. I remember my childhood experiences reading the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis and, you know, thinking that one... Uh, crotchety old Englishman who had died since I was born uh, could generate entirely complicated worlds in my head just by using this uh, crazy necromancy, if that's the right word, you know, this amazing magic of little black marks on a white page, you know, dazzles me still to think about it. It's very humbling. Uh, So the process of discovery, it, is sustaining up in itself no even question. when you don't know where it's going. No question. It, also, writing is a way of thinking, uh, and often I can't really understand how I feel about anything until I've written through it and trying to understand exactly how I feel, whether it's about a social issue or something in my life or just my characters. Um, and, and also, writing is a way to avoid sleepwalking through your life. You know, if you're sitting in an airport and you have a journal in your lap, suddenly you're paying attention. You know, you're looking at the world and thinking and uh, trying to arrange words in new ways. And that is very much a way to avoid the narcolepsy of everyday life. So when you develop a piece of writing, where do you start? There, are, Let me qualify this by saying there are as many ways to do it as there are writers. The more folks I meet who are very accomplished writers, the more I realize everybody begins and ends in different manner. Uh, I start usually by trying to find those things I'm most fundamentally interested in. Something sparks my interest, and I start writing about that. Often, only later will I start spiraling people up out of that. Last night I was reading, I'm going to Hawaii tomorrow to write for a magazine, and last night I was reading some Hawaiian history, and uh, when Captain Cook arrived in the islands, iron was hugely important to the islanders they would swim out in the thousands to the ship and sometimes try to overtake it or they would offer sex or all of their pigs and fruit for nails you know literally iron nails something they had seen before but maybe only had one nail in the whole village so that immediately is something very interesting to me who knows if i would be able to start a story up out of that but the idea that something very common in our lives um, was very scarce at another time in another context those kind of things spark my interest. And it will only be maybe after months of fiddling around with that that maybe you would start to build characters up out of that situation. I know that you have talked a lot about research, and I'm wondering if you could talk about how you incorporate research into your writing. And also, does it happen at a particular stage in the writing process, or do you do it throughout the process? Uh, yeah, that's a nice question. It's kind of two parts because um, when you fit in research is a really important thing to consider. Sometimes if you research things too late in your work, you kind of will derail a lot of the work you've already done. 
Uh, yeah, my students, even graduate students who sometimes are older than me, uh, tend to rebel against the idea of research. They're like, we got into fiction writing to make stuff up. We're not interested in going back to the library and doing a research paper. But for me, uh, nonfiction and the natural, the physical world, those are often very rich resources for me to draw a story out of, to draw a narrative out of. Um, I have a story called The Hunter's Wife in my first book, uh, and for months that was really just a, a series of paragraphs about hibernation. I was just interested, you know, what did animals do in the winter, and do you consider that life when their heartbeat's beating, you know, a frog's heartbeat is beating twice an hour. You know, is that alive or is that dead? Um, it was, you know, it took me a long time to develop human characters out of that, and um, so for me, research is often a seed and then the beginning of any project, especially anything set historically, research is fundamental. Um, you know, looking at pictures, re research can mean a lot of different things. You can go to a library and do stacks research like you were taught, you know, in college, maybe if you're of a certain age, or you can, um, go places, you know, you can talk to people, you can listen to, um, you know, radio uh, narratives recorded, you know, that StoryCorps project. You can look at images. Uh, right now I'm looking at a lot of Sears catalogs from the 40s just to try to build this atmosphere for this World War II novel that I'm writing. So uh, as long as you look at research as this open-ended thing, life as material in a sense, you know, your life becomes material. There's something narcissistic about being a writer and that everything is potentially potentially something you can cannibalize and pour into your own work. That said, you can research too much. You can fall in love with the tea leaves and forget to make a cup of tea. Ultimately, you don't want to just keep showing your reader, like, look at how interesting this tea leaf is, and look at this one. Ultimately, you have to build it into a narrative, pull out the tea leaves, and present a nice cup of tea to your reader, in a sense. What do you see as the connection between research and imagination? That's a nice question. You know, uh, the way I think of it in terms of my fiction is it's often a third imagination, a third research, and a third experience. So the, obviously there's a connection between research and imagination. I think it's a it's uh, the soil in which your imagination sprouts. And I think it's also uh, a place to rein in your imagination. A reader is... Whether or not you're setting a book on Pluto, uh, you're setting a book in the 15th century or in the 25th century... You're, a reader is an, interested in plausibility. Um, you know, it, a reader is more than happy to believe people can drink blood or walk um, in outer space, but you've got to render that world in a plausible way. And research and, and imagination help deliver that. You know, I have some supernatural things happen in my work occasionally, and whether or not it's a man whose dreams come true or a woman who can put her hands on animals and feel what they dream you have to render those things in a plausible way. So just because you have something supernatural happening doesn't mean you shouldn't go read about dreams or go read about hibernation or, um, you know, dream theory. You shouldn't read Freud just because, you know, you're inventing things. That doesn't make sense to me. You know, read NASA pamphlets, even if you're having astronauts going to Pluto. Do you think that uh, writing a book or a short story, I know that you do both, has a life cycle to it. Uh, can you explain? What do you mean, Suzanne? Uh, do you think it has some stages that you recognize having done it a number of times? Hmm. 
Yeah, even like a metamorphic stage and, you know, the, yeah, song, the chrysalis. Yeah. Uh, sure, certain things come quickly, but that's rare for me. Often I'll generate, um, you know, a bunch of pages, say, for a short story that after three months I realize it's going nowhere and it's a very frustrating and soul-rotting place. You feel very upset about your life for a couple of days. But you realize if you're lucky to live longer, maybe two years from then, yeah, you can help resurrect it and you can start building something very strange and new into it. You start to see something with clearer eyes if you put it away for a little while. So I do think work goes through stages like that. I think uh, it's, it's hard to understand exactly when a story uh, is ready, but often if you can let yourself grow up a little bit even a month you'll have enough perspective you'll be defamiliarized enough from the work to go back to it and see it with clearer eyes is there a point in your process of writing where the characters start to separate from you and even talk back to you or or kind of take on a life of their own uh, yes and no. I'm always a little skeptical of writers who I hear will say, oh, I just kind of step back and let the characters dictate everything. For me, characters are often like these, like lumps of clay that you've built and they, you put the arms on and the head on and then you take the head off and put a different head on and you try to understand who they are and then they look at you and they're like, what should we do next? You know, it's a lot of trial and error. Uh, so occasionally, very late in a project, if you've really been working on it, like six, seven hour days, day after day, then you start dreaming about it sometimes. Often when you're doing the dishes or walking the dog, your subconscious is solving problems that you've made for yourself, the dead ends we talked about earlier. Uh, and occasionally, yeah, then you you will feel as though the characters are kind of solving the rest of the book for you. Um, but, you know, it's you who are doing it, uh, for sure. There are so many days when you're just grunting it out. And as long as you're present at the desk, I think it counts as a day. But there are many days when the characters are not doing what you want them to be doing. You know, they're not, they're not dr- making a dramatic situation interesting for a reader. They're just... You're just describing what's in their pockets or what's in their apartment or, you know, trying to get understand who they are, what they want. Do you often run into dead ends and are dead ends part of the process for I think you? they are, yeah. Uh, I was just talking to Charles D'Ambrosio about, how did he phrase it, accidents, like uh, happy accidents. Often, you know, in in writing, you know, you're a human, uh, you know, and it's so hard to remember even when you read Virginia Woolf or Melville or Cormac McCarthy, somebody who whose work seems very finished to you. It's hard to remember that these are humans making it. And of course, there's always accidents and surprises when you're writing. And sometimes they work out. And dead ends are part of that. Often writing into a dead end feels so agonizing. And you despair and you think, I cannot finish this thing. But if you can just remind yourself, and that comes with maturity and practice, if you can just remind yourself, this is part of it. You know, um, Being able to recognize that you have written yourself into a dead end is a good place to be. You know, A lot of beginning writers often feel like everything they produce is ready. And you know, that's just no humans are like that. You know, Creativity is built often around failure. The, the, the willingness to risk failure uh, and I think often it's people's fear of failure that keeps them from trying to begin with. And if you can get that out of your life and start saying, you know, it's okay if this thing caves in, I'm trying it, um, you can start to generate a lot freer work, I think. So when you reach a point that feels like a dead end or that feels like a failure, what do you do? 
um, you bang your head on the desk and then you go for a run or do something outside and try to forget, you know, today. And uh, often, uh, you know, you can describe it. Uh, for me, or especially writing a novel, I describe it as like trying to carry a bunch of pancake batter across a warehouse in your hands. You know, you just, you're going to drop some and it's not going to be a clean process carrying this stuff. You know, if you're transporting a bathtub one dropper at a time across a big warehouse, you know, it's, you're going to spill water. So, if you can just remember, this is all part of the journey, and um, and like I said before, you know, you're lucky that you realize it's a dead end at all. That's a good start. If you're thinking critically about your work, that's good. Have you ever had to abandon something? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I have a whole uh, novel about lighthouses somewhere inside my computer. Uh, I have many, many starts of stories that I do believe will uh, someday come back to me, but they probably won't. Uh, and then, of course, everything I've published, especially the fiction, say for a 20-page story, I'll generate at least 100 pages of prose. And a lot of that will, you know, just stay in these wounded darlings folders on your computer. And you think, oh, maybe I'll use that. But really, you won't. It's just stuff you had to write to get to the finished product. You know, while at the time, in those hours you were making those paragraphs, you thought they were right. You thought they were the right thing. So once you have generated work, like you've generated that 100 pages, how do you start to work with the work that you've generated or turn from that, that initial process of generation into something that you, you will actually use? In some ways, at least in my experience, it's a little bit of a false dichotomy to suggest there's just production of material and then there's revision of it. And sometimes my students are like, this has been through 8.5 drafts and for me, it's really hard to quantify that. Um, I'll, I'll be re when I wake up in the morning. I'll be reading through a lot of what I've written, whether the day before, or months before, or years before, in this project, trying to understand what it is, and I'm changing it the whole time as I go through it. I'm condensing it, making it more efficient. Hopefully, trying to re-understand the characters and often tweaking little things like what if she coughs here or. What if he's a shoemaker instead of a piano maker? You know, and you, suddenly those little changes start to become very, very global when you've got a big 200-page project or 500-page project. So uh, it's hard for me to say that, like, I have 100 pages at a certain point and then I'm just slicing. Occasionally a magazine will say, we love the story, we need to get 1,000 words out of it. And that's kind of a different process. I really enjoy that. Then you're just testing every word to make sure it's carrying. There's passenger words, and then there's words that are doing the work. And every passenger has to go. Um, so How I do like you that. test that? Oh, it's fun, you know. I mean, every the, every of, every adjective, especially adverbs, um, especially dialogue tags like she said, he said, you just cut it and see, can this stand up? Will the reader make sense of this if I leave it? You know, so much of the work of fiction is done in the silences and the absences between sentences, and your reader will bring her imagination to the project, and you can't do all the work for her, so make sure that you leave white space for her. So often, you know, you tend to overwrite things in the beginning to understand what they are, and then it's a matter of scaling all that language back later. So how do you know when a project is done? Well, uh, there are these easy ways to say, you know, when you start taking the commas out and putting it back in, and I do tinker tons with the language, so often I feel like uh, they're done when I'm tinkering. 
But uh, done for me uh, is giving it to my wife. Then I know my editor will make me take the thing apart. It's like a car. You've built this thing. It's running. And then you've got to take the whole thing apart and rebuild it, hopefully more in a more clean way. And that can be a really defeating moment. Where you're like, oh, my gosh, I've got to take this whole thing apart again. So there's all these different moments of done. There's the done like when it's ready and coming out of a printer. And then, you know, you think it's ready. But then if you get a night's sleep and start reading it through, even the next morning, you go on an airplane flight and start reading it, you can already see, oh, it's not really quite done yet. So there's done in like piecing together a narrative. And then there's done in getting the language really ready. And then there's done in kind of getting the whole thing out into the world. But often even at readings, the public readings, uh, especially when a book is new, I'll be wishing I had made changes. You know, you're never really done. Huh. So there, there's still things after it's published that you could go back and say, sure. oh, I'd fix that. Yeah. I th- actually think that's healthy. I, you know, I worry more about writers, often very popular writers, and like say romance, who um, they're not quite ready to challenge every sentence the way they probably should be challenged, you know, and their attention is in other places, which is admirable, especially narrative, drama, tension, even titillation. But um, often if you examine their sentences too much, they fall apart. You know, I see that in, say, the work of Dan Brown or uh, a lot of the thrillers that are very popular. The sentences often have big syntactical problems inside of them. So uh, I think it's good if you're being critical of your work and testing those things even after it's out. Are there any specific personal issues that writers have to work out in order to write? Obviously, fear, I think, is maybe the most universal one. Not just fear of failure, but fear of death and fear of rejection. And uh, every writer still, I think, no matter how accomplished you become, you know, whether you're Don DeLillo or Toni Morrison or you're just a you know young writer in Portland just getting started, you're always afraid that, um, you know, what you're going to make won't work out. And you just have to try to shrug those fears off every morning. And, you know, maybe another personal issue people are dealing with quite a bit now is the immediacy of media and the internet, email, all of those things are kind of universal. The more friends I talk to that, you know, no matter where they live, they're all struggling with, you know, how do we maintain a reader's attention span with so many other competing narratives? And also maybe keep themselves focused. Certainly that's something I struggle with. Yeah. When you have a six Scrabble games going on your phone at any time, you're like, maybe I should do one of those instead of write today. I know that you are also a teacher of creative writing. So what do you teach? Uh, well, I, did, I just taught a graduate uh, workshop at, for uh, MFA students at Boise State this spring in Idaho. You know, mostly I'm working with them on reading and how to read, how to read each other's work and how to read, you know, whether it's classics or new contemporary stories. You know, I'm always cramming their binders full of reading material, trying to get them to think the way writers should think as they read, you know, which is how is this made? You know, how did this person make this and why did she make these decisions in these places? So often, you know, the way a carpenter looks at a table and uh, versus the way, say, a literature professor looks at a novel, the way a carpenter would flip over a table and look at where the nails are, where the cuts have been made, what's been discarded, how waste was avoided, how efficient was it made, you know, all those things need to be asked when you're reading something as a writer's. You know, often there's a lot of attrition after MFA programs. Unfortunately, not everybody becomes a published novelist in the first couple of years after they get their master's. And so I feel like it's my job to educate them as lifelong readers as much as writers. What do you know now about writing that you didn't know when you got started? 
Hmm. We're talking about not the business of writing, but the craft yeah, of writing. Well, well, both of those I think are are interesting. The first que- the first one is easier for me to answer um, because you do there is a steep learning curve just about how the publishing world works. You know, when my first book came out, which is what eleven years ago now, I did a reading at the uh, Astor Place, Barnes and Noble, or maybe it was Union Square, Barnes and Noble in New York. Going up the escalator, you just see these books around you, so many titles. And you look at the calendar, and there's a reading uh, earlier that day before yours, and there's two readings the following night. And you start to realize it's like this this journey isn't done for me. You know, I had Scribner has been my publisher my whole career, and that was the publisher of Fitzgerald and Hemingway. And I thought, this is it. Like, I've made it. I've got Edith Wharton's publisher. I'm done for the rest of my life. And then you realize, Oh, my book is, you know, less than an inch wide. It's spying out on a shelf with a million other titles around it. So for me, that was a really good lesson. I realized that you have to be as generous as possible with your reader. If your reader has so many other choices, what to do with her time, and you're asking a lot from her, you're asking seven hours of her life, you know, reward her by being as generous as possible. Don't be careless in your sentences. Try to keep your the thread of your narrative above the water all the time so that she's not feeling weighted down. And try to ask big questions about life, like why are we here and what is time and what is memory? And try not to just um, fritter away her goodwill, you know. Um, so maybe that's, a, that's an answer to both questions. You know, I felt very lucky to be published, but also very humbled at the same time. Thank you so much. Thank you, Suzanne. It's fun. So this has been Writers on Craft, a show about creative writing and the creative process. And I'm Suzanne LeGrand, talking today to author Anthony Dorff. 